Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. not as nimble as the young guy who just hopped up on the platform. I still use the stairs and I look at them as I go. I'm at that, uh, I'm at that age and uh, you know, if it wasn't for recovery, I would not be at this age. And so as much as I would prefer not to age, that is a good thing. That's how you become an old timer, right? You don't drink and you live a long, long time. And, uh, and I've done that. Uh, you know, by the grace of God and the, and the fellowship of this program and a, and a wonderful sponsor and meetings, um, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since April 25th of 1986. And it's, uh, it's been a long time. It's been 13,450 days. And that's important for me to remember because somewhere along the line, when we're sober for a while, we begin, begin counting months and years. And yet we'll tell a newcomer, count your days, like uh, the young lady was up here and said 30, 60, 90 days, you know, uh, six months and nine months. So we want you to count those days. And the same is true for me as a person who's been around for a while. I need to remember the importance of every day. So those of you who are new or relatively new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, welcome. Um, it says, with all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. And you know why we beg you? I don't need you to stay sober so I stay sober. Any more than I need you to accept my amends in step nine for that amends to be complete. As, at some point, you have to own your position we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start because we don't want you to go through what so many of us found it necessary to go through upon getting here. I don't want you to walk out on your children. I don't want you to, to go through two wives who are wonderful women. I don't want you to be shunned by your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. I don't want you to become unemployable. So if there's a way that you can come in here and get sober and not have to go through those things, that's why we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. So some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I love words. I, I think words are so fantastic because words have meaning. And, and how I perceive that meeting is how I'm going to process and how I process a word will depend upon what I do with it, which is action. So check this out. Cunning. And this is, hopefully this will describe your alcoholism because it describes mine. Cunning is a skilled employed in a shrewd or sly manner as in deceiving. Alcohol deceived me. Alcohol told me it would make me an almost. And it made me a nothing. Then it's baffling. Baffling, as defined in dictionary.com, is impossible to understand, perplexing, bewildering, puzzling. I don't know how I got to where I ended up when I was 32 years old. I didn't plan it. I didn't want to disappoint everyone. I didn't, I didn't want the things that happened to me and to my children that happened along the way. But alcoholism is baffling. We swear off at 10 o'clock at night and by noon we're drunk again. It's and we're not even sure how we got there. Like, I wasn't sure how I ended up in certain cities. Waking up to a person I'd never met before. I don't... How my... I got somewhere where my car wasn't. I don't know how that happened. I just know I took one drink. 
And then it's powerful. Powerful is defined as having or exerting great power or force, producing great physical effects. It's potent, it's efficacious, which means it's a powerful drug. Having great effectiveness, great authority or influence. And that is alcoholism. You know, they told me in the beginning, if you're not sure you're an alcoholic, stick around because one, you'll do till one shows up. Thank you, I find that humorous to this day. And that's true. It took me the longest time to admit that I was alcoholic. Oh, I raised my hand. Hey, my name is Robert. I'm alcoholic. Because I saw you doing that. And I needed to be like you. Because I needed to find a place where I would finally feel comfortable. And I knew I couldn't drink and use anymore. I remember waking up on February 9th of 1986. After I realized that Gamblers Anonymous didn't work. Right? It doesn't work until you work it. So I end up, and, and, and I'm standing in front of my mirror. And some voices we would hear, maybe you can relate to this. Um, some voices were real and some were imagined. But the most damaging one were the imagined voices. Where everyone was in my head saying, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? You know that bewilderment that family members get when they look at us destroying our lives as if we have, as a big book says, impunity. Like nothing's going to happen if I continue on this destructive path. It would be like me thinking I can drive my car off a cliff and not end up at the bottom dead. But we live that way, as if there's no end of the road. And I remember standing in front of the mirror, and in the past I would hear these voices that would say, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? And this particular morning on February 9th of 1986, there were no voices. I stood in the mirror. Nietzsche says, when you stare into the abyss, abyss, it stares back. And boy, it stared back. And for the first time in my life, I saw myself dead. I was 32 years old. Nobody wants to die when they're 32. Heck, I'm 69 and I don't want to die. But I was trapped in a progressive illness. And I had no way to get out. And by God's intervention, God had been intervening in my life for the longest time. I just didn't recognize it was God. It was only by God's mercy that I had been alive through all the things that we do, all the places we go, all the people we're with, that we're even in this room tonight. Because the reality is, alcohol kills scores more people that are represented in this room this evening. Alcoholism is a terminal illness. Did you know that alcoholism is one of the only diseases known to man that will tell you you don't have it? We call that denial. So I'm standing in front of the mirror. I don't have a place to live. My mom and dad didn't even know I was there overnight. I had no money because I'd gotten fired from my job. And I was standing in front of the mirror and I realized I was going to die. And back in these days, back in 1986, we had these things called yellow pages. And you actually, it was a physical book. <laughs> Google probably wasn't invented yet. Um, and, and I remember looking in the yellow pages under alcoholism. Now, mind you, I was brought up in Southern California, Third and Hill, if you're familiar with Los Angeles, right five blocks from Skid Row, lived on Bunker Hill, Angel's Flight going up and down the hill. That was my neighborhood. And, and, and 7th Street and 5th Street and Skid Row, 5th and Crocker and all those areas, 7th and Alameda, that was my old playground. So I knew what an alcoholic looked like. They pushed a shopping cart, they had nowhere to live, and they drank cheap wine. Well, I hadn't had a shopping cart yet. I was on my way to homeless, and I liked scotch and beer. Wine was never good. So in my mind, I didn't fit that category. But in my heart, in my loneliness and my despair, that seemed logical to me. To look under alcoholism. And I, and I started calling treatment centers. And finally, once they realized I didn't have any money, didn't have a job, didn't have insurance, it was, have a nice day, have a nice day, have a nice day. And I finally came across the Nevada Treatment Center over on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas. And they said to me, if you can come up with $50 and you can be here in one hour, we'll talk to you. And I thought, boy, do they know me. 
right? I gotta go ask for 50 bucks, and if I can get somewhere in $50, I must be serious, right? In an hour. So I called my dad, who had been sober for seven years at the time. I said, Dad, I need help. And this place told me that if I can get there in an hour with $50, I don't think I'd ever seen my dad move more quickly. And he got there, and he dropped me off at the Nevada Treatment Center, and that was the beginning of my recovery journey. I would relapse after 71 days um, because I thought I could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. Uh, and I stayed out for five days trying to recapture that feeling of being what I call an almost. You know, when you come from nothing and you are nothing and you're always going to be a nothing, being an almost is really the top of the world, isn't it? And that's when I tried to find, I tried to find that place where I could not hurt anymore and still be alive, almost like an anesthesiologist. Just trying to apply enough medication so I wouldn't have to feel with involuntary muscle reaction, but I was right above Vita, vital, vital signs where I wouldn't have to die. That's where I tried to be emotionally and spiritually and mentally suspended from my drinking career. But I wasn't always an alcoholic. I, I didn't start drinking until I was five years old. So what happened <laughs> along the way? I should have drank when I was five. I didn't drink until I was 14. Because when I was five, I knew I was a nothing. And live with that. And so many of you can relate. Because... I didn't become an alcoholic because I was looking for something to do. I became an alcoholic because I was looking for something not to feel. Something that would tell me everything is going to be okay. Because when I was five years old, I could have stood a drink instead of crying myself to sleep at night. Just wondering, how come it hurt so much being me? You know that feeling? Where you're just laying there. Somebody would say it's 2 o'clock in the morning and the lights are out and nobody else is there. We know what our reality is. We know what our truth is. Now, it didn't help that we were poor, that my mother was codependent, that my father was alcoholic, and I was in the middle of seven kids. I was like a poster child for addiction. But that was, it was a reason. It wasn't an excuse. I mean, there were a lot of people brought up that way who didn't become alcoholic. But I can remember just feeling lost and alone. So you can only mask for so long until it's either you find a way to mitigate the pain or you find a way to end the pain altogether, which sadly so many people choose suicide. I chose suicide. It was just the long version of it. But I remember... And Father Martin talks about this in Chalk Talk. You know, our first drink was a sensation. You know, I remember the exhilaration of that first drink when I was 14 years old. My friends, Don and Dean, we took some booze. Our parents had passed out by the time. And we took some booze from them and we sat under my tree in my front yard. And, uh, and we drank because we could get away with it. But I remember what happened to me. It wasn't just a drink. It was that feeling of being an almost. I drank alcoholically from the second time I drank. I drank the second time because of how it made me feel the first time. It was like suspended animation. And I went from being a nothing who was always going to be a nothing to an almost. And when you are nothing, being an almost is the top of the world. I could just set aside all the madness. That's what I would tell people. It quieted the madness. And one of the things that alcohol and everything else I did along with it, it kept me alive long enough to stumble into Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I guarantee you, if I couldn't have medicated my emotions, my feelings, I would have killed myself a lot quicker, a lot sooner. So here I am, 14 years old, 
trying to be athletic because I was very athletic in high school and I was uh, in choirs ever since I could remember. So I loved to sing. I loved to do drama. I was in major sports. But I started to discover second all and cross and, and uh, crosstops, which was speed back in those days. And drinking, because you couldn't drink all the time, because you'd get found out I was, you know, eventually, no matter how good of a drunk you are, you eventually get a little sloppy. <laughs> so I drink in the morning, spinata, for all of you wine connoisseurs out there. And I would uh, eat some mini tabs, and that would get me through the day. And then later on in night, I would eat some second all and, and drink. And that's how I often ended my day. And little by little by little, my dependence grew. Because as I got older, there were things that were expected of me that I didn't have the capacity to give back. Because again, I was still a nothing unless I drank and used and then I was an almost. And I knew it was that which I did that made me an almost not who I was. So I knew I was inadequate. So I knew somewhere along the line I was, I was going to lose and there's this thing called self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's how I lived. I knew eventually everything was going to keep up with, catch up to me. I just had to hold it off and not feel it long enough and last long enough. So as I would go through 14, 15, 16, 17 years, my dependence and my need to drink and to use grew and grew and grew. And then the anger set in. The anger I remember moving from Southern California to Oregon uh, my, between my junior and senior year in high school. And if you want to get a kid sideways, move them their senior year between their junior and senior year. Completely displace them, especially to a place like Oregon. Take no offense. Oregon, Southern California and Oregon are, you know, beasts of a different color. And so here I was in Oregon, and I was angry. Because in my mind, the only chance I had was to stay where I was, even though it was killing me. Of course, denial said it wasn't. But here I was in Oregon. Here was a magic moment. On January 3rd of 1972, I turned 18 years old. I tell you, I have to tell you this. I walked into the register's office as proud as proud could be, not only to announce I was 18, but to announce I was dropping out of high school. Here I was, January, I was going to graduate, even if I didn't show up, I was going to graduate in May, but I thought the best course of action was to drop out of high school, because I had to clear the path. See, by that time, high school became a distraction. High school became an inhibitor to me doing what I wanted to do, which was to drink and use. And now I could drop out of high school. Of course, we color it different ways. We call it something different because we, you know, we, we never want to admit that we're addicted to something that we can't control, that changes everything about us, that gets us to not care about things that we would otherwise care about. But here I was. Proud as proud can be. I remember showing the register of my license. She said, you can't do that. I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old. I'll show you. I'll kill me. And that set into action an acceleration of my addiction that I'm lucky I survived. Because at that point, I became a full-time drinker. It wasn't whether or not I was going to drink. It was matter how much I was going to drink. But you know, alcohol could only do so much. I could only drink so much for so long and then I would pass out and then I would wake up. And if you know much about remorse, waking up is not fun. So I began introducing other elements, other drugs into my system so I could just pass out once or twice maybe two or three times a week, and I would cut my remorse. It made perfectly good sense to me at the time. I'd cut my remorse down from six, seven days a week to two or three. If I didn't have to feel like a failure six days a week, I could only feel like a failure twice a week. Sign me up. 
Because that's the road I want to take. Because I knew that I was disappointing everyone around me. I still had aspirations. I still hoped I would be something different to someone. So I started changing old playgrounds and old playmates. I started getting into relationships. Later I would find out they would be hostages to my demise and, and resentment. Uh, but I started going different places thinking, this time it's going to be different. This place is going to be different. This person is going to be different. And you know, they weren't. Maybe they were, maybe they were different for a minute, but when the real me showed up, it was, everything was the same. Because again, I couldn't stay drunk or high long enough to permanently dispel the notion that I came from nothing, I was a nothing, and I was always going to be a nothing. And as I would go through job and relationships and, and situations with my family, I was so uncomfortable with my family that I wouldn't want them to know how much I drank. It turned out they knew. Uh, I was in denial, they weren't. I would have to get drunk and high before I went over to their place because I would not want them to see how much I drank and used. So I would have to go lit up. And I remember doing that and, and, and little by little, family members stopped talking to me. To the point where family members wouldn't even speak to me. I had brothers and sisters who would screen my calls until I was a year sober. Because they were so tired of hearing, this time it's going to be different. I really mean it this time. I promise I won't do this again. I promise I won't do that again. But finally, when I went into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous on March 9th, or February 9th of 1986, I began to be introduced to a group of people who were so much like me you know, I'd never known anyone who was like me. I was always different. I was always afraid. But I couldn't tell you because I, I was too concerned with how you would feel about me. But I walked into this room and I remember, I was telling Laura the other day that uh, I, didn't, I didn't even understand the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and the preamble, it says, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety, to help alcoholics achieve sobriety. And, and, I, and I'd never experienced fellowship before, but I remember there was this guy named Doc Irv. He would come in the morning, he would check our vitals and detox, and then he would come back in the evening, make sure we eat and check everything again, and he would be gone. I used to thought, wow. What a wonderful person that is, right? And then I saw him in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I thought, hey, that's that doctor over at the Nevada Treatment Center. You know, what's he about? Oh, he's a member of AA. And that's what he does in, in his service back. See, I didn't know what I was suffering from. I, I thought I had an obsessive compulsive disorder as I was diagnosed by the um, Nevada Psychiatric Center back in 1982. The psychiatrist said I had obsessive compulsive disorder with alcoholism and the prognosis was I would never get better. So he just sort of confirmed what I knew. You know what I knew? I would never get better. There was no hope for a person who was hopeless. There was no solution for a person who was as broken as I was. Until, like I say, I went into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met you for the very first time. And I, and I love what Bill talks about in his story about discovering a power greater than himself. And I'm paraphrasing here. You know, Bill says that he stood in the icy mountain of intellectual self, something to that degree. And he said he stood in the sunlight at last. And that's what going into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous was to me. I was, I was with a group of people for the first time in my life who, who actually understood me, 
who actually knew what I was feeling. They were an almost just like me. They were people who were broken with little to no hope of ever being put back together again. You know, they were people that Bill Wilson, co-founder of AA, would say were just once as hopeless as Bill. And I began to understand some things, but I only understood them to a degree. Because even though you gave me hope, I was convinced that if you knew everything about me, like, right? Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness is the how in the triangle. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. They're such an unfortunate, right? And it goes on. And that was me. I wanted to find that measurement of honesty where you would think I was telling you everything about me, but I knew I wasn't being honest. Because I couldn't be. You know, we're pretty despicable people. We do some pretty terrible things. I mean, who walks out on their children as they're crying at the door saying, Daddy, don't leave. And we literally move them out of the way because we're convinced they're going to be better off without us. Who does that? Who, who's an adulterer on a wonderful wife? Who steals from their mom's purse? Who does the things that we do? And yet, hey, let me tell you who I am. I don't think so. Because I was convinced that if you knew who I was, I'd be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. I knew it. So I didn't tell you. So I treated the program of Alcoholics Anonymous like we would treat Chuckarama or Sizzler. We go into this buffet. I want some of this. I want some of that. I don't want any of that. I'll have a little of that. And, you know, we like we bargain with the steps as if, you know, I want you to know right now, you're most of you aren't nearly as smart as me. So half measures could avail me something. That's what I thought. If I could just get you to believe enough of who I was, because I believed everything you said, but there were things that you weren't sharing with me because you weren't being told the truth. It would be like me going to Dr. Jones, who's my, my physician, and telling him partial history of an ailment I have with my arm. How successful do you think my doctor is going to be subscribing, prescribing, excuse me, a, a prescription for me that's going to get me well? Pretty much zero. And you didn't stand a chance either. And so I tell people all the time, I said, that mentality worked right up until I got drunk. And if you're new or relatively new, I beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. I don't, I don't want you to take as long with understanding the steps. I, today, I am a recovered alcoholic. I've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And if you have a problem with that, just read the big book. And, and if you have, don't know where that is, let me know, and I'll be more than happy to show you at the end of the meeting. But it wasn't always that way. Because I could not do the steps until I was completely honest with you. And I remember the first time, not, not the day, but I remember how it felt, and maybe you do as well. Remember when you walked into a meeting for the first time and you realized, I never have to go anywhere else. I can stay right here, and I'm going to be somebody. For the first time in my life, I was no longer a nothing. I was a somebody. And I could be something more. My friend Tom Bennett told me I could be weller than the well. Sign me up for that. Because it says in the big book, I can become well. And who? 
who's very sick, who doesn't want to become well? I did. And I am. I will become hopefully weller tomorrow and the next day. But as my sponsor, Slow Will, would say, I'm a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, oh, this arrogance in this guy is unbelievable. How dare you be happy, grateful, recover? And I went up to him after the meeting. I said, how can you say that? And he said, here, let me open up the pages of one, one, the first 164 pages to you, and I'll show you exactly. Either you believe this big book or you don't. If you don't, go try some controlled drinking, get a belly full of your condition, and when you're sweet, re sweetly reasonable, come back. Or you could admit you are powerless over alcohol and that your life had become unmanageable. You know, it says that I had to admit to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And so I did. When Tom told me, if you're not sure if you're an alcoholic, stick around till you want you'll do till one shows up it was funny to me in the beginning but I'm so glad it's like having a condition and finally knowing what's wrong what was wrong I, I had a mental obsession coupled with a physical allergy and even though you can't restructure my DNA so I will always have the physical allergy but who cares about a physical allergy if you can't change it who cares it is what it is. But I wanted to know how to attack that mental obsession that told me I could just have one. I remember my, my dear friend, um, Russian Ted, he told me one day, he said, if a if 137 train was on the tracks and you were standing there and it hit you, how much do you think the caboose had to do with it? And I said, well, I didn't know where it was going. He was much smarter than me. And I said, I, I guess nothing. And he said, exactly. And it's the first drink that gets you drunk. And, you know, my ego says, well, no, I can drink a pint. I can drink a fifth. I can drink this. I can have a 12-pack chaser. Takes a lot more to get me drunk. No, it doesn't. You know, in Japan, and I was telling our friends tonight at dinner, in Japan, there's a phrase that says, first a man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes the man. And the drink had taken me. And once I would have one drink, I no longer had the ability to say no to everything else. You know, where you, you leave for milk on Tuesday and you show up on Friday and you forgot why you left. You know, that's how we drink. So I admitted to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. Finally, I knew what was the matter and what was great about that was, not only did you know what was the matter, but you had a solution. It says on page 17, we have a way out in which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. It says, we are like the passengers on a great liner when moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Isn't that poetic? I just love the big book, don't you? It saved my life. I love anything that saved my life. And I hope you do too. So I get involved in AA and I start taking the steps. I get a sponsor. I'm going to three meetings a day because at this particular time I was unemployable. And this was after my relapse. And I remember coming back on April 25th, 1986. And by God's divine providence, I met my sponsor, Max, and he was almost waiting for me as if he was. And he never went to the late lunch bunch anyway, but here he was at, in this meeting room waiting for it turns out me. And he didn't know I was going to show up, but God knew. God was doing for me what I could not do for myself. He was making divine appointments with men who loved me, and they knew what a failure I was. And for the first time in my life, and it's not to say that people didn't love me. Because my mom and my dad did. My sisters and brothers did. It's just that I didn't know how to receive it. I didn't know how to process it. I didn't, I didn't know how to be accountable to reciprocate that. Because I was worthless in my own mind, in my own spirit. 
And, and Max was there and we went through the third step prayer. He said, get on your knees. We're going to pray. And that was the beginning of my journey today, 13,450. And I, and I started to have an insatiable appetite for the 12 steps and the first 164 pages. A greater appetite for that than I did to drink. And the drink became inconsequential. And as I went through the steps, I was so excited that after step one, I would be introduced to step two where, where the hopelessness and the, and, the, and the futility of all we were doing in step one comes to pass and I realize that I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. Thank God there's a step two where I come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity because I knew I was insane. Sane people don't do what we do. And when I went to that, I was so willing to turn my will and my life. I didn't want to have anything to do with my life. I had ruined my life. Everything I'd ever done to my own accord got me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and probably should have gotten me to prison and death. And yet God's mercy prevented that from happening. But it did get me to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then I was introduced to step four. And I finally had an opportunity to share everything that was bothering me. I wanted to tell you for so long who I had become. All my faults, all my character defects, everything that made me think I was a nothing. And all the things that I did along the way to prove that fallacy, that lie, that myth. And when I got done with step four, I was so excited. Because God already knew. My sponsor already knew. But there's something amazing about sharing that. So I admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. And by that time, I was so ready to have God remove these defects of character and shortcomings. You know what a defect of character is? is when you have a flat tire. A shortcoming is when you don't have a spare. So I realized where, where I was deficient in my life. And I understood my need for God because I could not do for me what He needed to do. And you know, steps 8 and 9 were kind of scary. I made more out of 8 than really. It's kind of like step 4 because all I'm doing is making a list. I'm not even doing anything with it. It's just a list. But I began to realize that my only way back to restoring relationships was to tell you that I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be that person. I didn't mean to harm you. I didn't mean to walk out on you. I didn't mean to disappoint you. I didn't mean to steal from you. I didn't mean to commit adultery against you. And, and I had to understand that as it would make those amends, it wasn't about whether or not you received it. It was whether or not I stated it. I said it. I admitted. You know, the, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, and again, if you're new or relatively new, just jump in. You know, get yourself a big book. Find someone who's willing to be your sponsor and come to meetings. You know, it's great because the formula is so simple, it's never changed. I have, a, I have a second edition here. Nothing's changed. You can look at the fourth edition. I think a fifth edition is coming out. I'm not sure if I want to see that one. But every, the first 164 pages haven't changed. Do you know why? Because the plan is recovery has not changed. I am so encouraged that there's a step 10 where I continued to take personal inventory. And when I was wrong, which is often, I promptly admit it. My sponsor, Will, 43 years sobriety, says if you clear away the wreckage of your present, it doesn't become the wreckage of your past. Isn't that brilliant? So I can't wait to do step 10 because I need you to know that I'm sorry. I need Laura to know that I wish I could be a better husband. You know, that's recovery. Laura and I will be married 34 years. She's my third wife. But something about sobriety and relationships kind of goes together, doesn't it? Because now I can have one. I know how to be the person I had always wished I was for my first two marriages. What's the difference? I'm sober. 
That's a nice common denominator. So I take step 10, and when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. And I realize my, my frailty as a person, and it opens up my need for God. My absolute need for God. So in step 11, I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as we understood God. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. You know, I went from powerless over alcohol and drugs to having power. I always wanted power. I tell people, <laughs> I, I had a, actually a friend um, uh, message me and he sent me something and, uh, and I would tell him my middle name was Moore. So he actually sent me a package that says Robert Moore Pardon. It's kind of cool. And I heard a guy speaking one time and he was t- telling a story and, and, and he said his name, middle name was Moore. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Because when we're out there ripping and running, it's more drugs, more alcohol, more pornography, more gambling, more of everything that's destroying us. My personality type is A, figure that. And, and, and my middle name is always going to be more. So if my middle name is always going to be more, then all I need to do is change what more represents, what more is. So I'm excited to jump into step 11 because I want that power to go make a difference in the life of somebody else that you made a difference in my life. And then I'm in love with step 12. Having had, I was telling some folks at dinner tonight, you cannot do the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous without a spiritual awakening. You can't. You know how I know? It says in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So, so I have a spiritual awakening. I go help someone else and I make sure that I'm not a hypocrite because I have to live what I'm suggesting that you do. Right? That's what a hypocrite is. is a person who's not himself on Sunday. Right? So I need to be consistent. If I tell you that it's one day at a time and how many days do you have today? And you tell me 29 and you ask me how many days do I have? And I said, well, I have, you know, 36 years, 8 months and 47 days. Well, that doesn't tell me anything. You know, if I tell you to get a sponsor, call your sponsor. When was the last time you called your sponsor? Well, it happened to be on Friday. Oh, you need to go to AA meetings. Well, when was the last time you were in a meeting? Well, I'm in one tonight, but I was in a big book study on Thursday night. When was the last time you read your big book? Well, you know, on and on and on. Because we have to live to be an example. I need to be an example to you as others were an example to me. And I want to dispel a myth for you right here and right now. It is said, maybe you've said it, that the newcomer is the most important person in the room. I'm here to tell you that is not true. Sorry, newcomers. It's not true. Bob Earl said, if we view AA, if we view AA that way, then we view AA as a giant furnace that needs new coals just to keep it going. Think about it. If the newcomer is the most important person in the room, then we view AA as a giant furnace that needs new coals to keep it going. He said the fact for us is, if we who are already here aren't doing the best we can for our own recovery, there's not going to be anyone here when the newcomer arrives. And that makes the responsibility on us all. I think it's why many of you are here tonight. You're asking God in your sobriety, how can I be of greater service to the man who is still sick? The big book says, the answers will come if your house is in order. But obviously, I love the word obviously, it, boom, bright light, right? But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. You know, oftentimes our book is meant to be suggestive only. They just put that in there because you can't tell an alcoholic anything. (laughs) There's nothing suggestive of the big book. From the forward to the first edition, precisely why they wrote this book is to show me how I can recover from a seemingly hopeless state. Precisely. 
They don't say, as a suggestion, we know precisely why. It means pay attention, Robert. We're going to show you something very detailed that's going to give you a blueprint that you can use for the rest of your life. And, and I have to, unless I have a mental disorder or something wrong, if I have the capacity to be honest, I can still recover. So if you're not recovered, ask yourself, what is it? Do I not have the capacity to be honest? Am I trying to shortchange the program? What am I not doing? People who relapse, and I, and I talk to people, sadly, if I talk to you and you've relapsed, you're a fortunate person because most people who relapse, we don't see you anymore. You go and you die because alcoholism is a progressive disease. It doesn't stop progressing just because you stop drinking. It waits for you. And I don't stay sober because of this, but could you imagine how far my alcoholism has progressed at, after 36 years? That's why you see so many alcoholics who relapse. They drink a beer, they drink a, a pint, they drink a quart, they drink a half gallon, and then they're dead. Pretty quick. If you ever seen I got clean and sober in Las Vegas. I, I saw people who relapsed just by going down and only betting $20 and getting free drinks. Right? That's another thing. And I'll try to close here. I'm pretty close on time, right? Doing all right? So... I remember, I got clean and sober in Las Vegas. I've been around alcohol my entire sobriety because I was a room service waiter in Las Vegas. And when I became employable again, the only thing I could go back and do was to be a coffee shop graveyard waiter at Fitzgerald's, a little dive on, on Fremont Street. And, and, and I remember getting sober in that environment. So I really stayed close to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember going to California when I moved there at about a year and a half sobriety. Moved over to Fullerton and would go to Fullerton Alano Club over on Harbor, if you're familiar with it. And, and I would raise my hand as an out-of-town visitor for two reasons. I moved from Las Vegas and I always wanted attention, so if I raised my hand, you would look at me, right? I still have an ego that I battle with on a regular basis. And so I remember raising my hand and I'd say, my name is Robert, I'm from Las Vegas. And they would come up to me afterwards and they were honest and sincere. They would say, how'd you get sober in Vegas? I was pretty naive, although I wouldn't tell you at the time. And I would answer a question with a question and I would say, well, how'd you get sober here? And they would mention three or four things. I said, that's how we get sober in Vegas. Because it was my first exposure of being out of town. And I realized that the program of sobriety is the program of sobriety. We can carry it anywhere we go. That's why I, I was talking to uh, Brandon earlier. I, I'm going to go back to this meeting in Rule 62 over in uh, South Jordan. And, you know, I walk into a meeting for the first time, don't know everybody. Halfway through the meeting, I know everybody because everybody's telling my story. And, and at the end of the meeting, I've got 10 new phone numbers and relationships with people I'd never met before, but I've known all my life. That's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And again, if you're new or relatively new, I, I want you to experience what I've experienced. I want you to experience relationships with your children. Both of my girls, my oldest girls, they talk to me. My one girl, not, not as much as I'd like, but we exchange text messages. Hey, I hope you're doing okay. You know how much I love you. Just because we don't talk doesn't mean we don't think of each other. And she'll send me a heart back and she'll say, I love you, Dad. And my other daughter, Carol, she thinks I hung the moon. She, we were talking yesterday and Laura and I were FaceTiming with, with one of our grandchildren. And she said, hey, Pop, would you call me tomorrow? I've got some personal things I need to discuss with you and I want to know what your opinion is. I walked out on this girl when she was four years old. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous... And I'm not saying that every relationship turns out that way. I have a couple siblings who, you know, I'll probably see them. Well, they'll see me at my funeral. And, and, and that's okay. Because I don't need them to love me to love me. Because I am recovered. Do I wish things were different? Well, sure I do. Am I the best version of me I've ever been? Absolutely I am. And I owe everything to the 12 steps of recovery. Everything I am, 
I owe to a loving God as he expressed himself in our group conscious. There is nothing in my life that I don't attribute to my sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, to the men and to the women who were there when I first arrived. Every person who was significant in my life upon recovery is either living sober or passed away in their sobriety, including my sponsor of 32 years. Fortunately, I and my friend Slow Will, happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic, the last time I saw my sponsor alive and I knew he was going to die before I saw him again, I called Will from the parking lot of a hospital in Las Vegas and said, hey Will, Jack's gonna die. Would you be my sponsor? And I've known Will, again, longer than I knew Jack. That's how much I believe in this program. And I was, what, 33 years sober at the time. 32 plus years sober. But I felt the need to have a sponsor, someone to talk to. So everything I ask you to do, I do. Because I believe in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe in the first 164 pages. I believe that Dr. Silkworth knew exactly what he was talking about when he said men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, even though it's injurious to us, but we can recover, providing we follow a few simple rules. I just wanna know what those rules were. And the rules are clean house, trust God, and work with others. Thank you so much, my name is Robert, I'm alcoholic.